The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox with the return of Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Chinese markets sinking as Beijing extends its regulatory crackdown, wiping billions off education and property stocks, also targeting Tencent over music licensing rights. The Dow cracks at 35,000 as U.S. markets round out a volatile week at record highs, with all eyes now turning to mega-cap tech earnings plus the Federal Reserve this week. Very good morning, everybody. Credit Suisse settles its spying case out of court as the Swiss lender looks to draw a line under the scandal that took down the former chief executive, Tijan Tian. And Europe's largest real estate deal hangs in the balance this hour as Germany's Venovia says it may not reach the minimum acceptance level for its tie-up with Deutsche Wohnen with a final result due today. Parliament working through the night to pass a controversial law blocking unvaccinated people from many public venues, despite weekend protests against the measure turning violent. Very good morning, everybody. Very good morning to you, Steve, as well. You remember back uh, in April, we talked about uh, Philip's first quarter numbers and they had a dramatic uh, writing up of expectations around the Q1 sales number. It was a 74% hike in expectations around core first quarter earnings. Uh, Obviously, a health tech company is in the right space, one would imagine, when it comes to the current circumstances that we're all living under. So we're getting a look here now at the second quarter sales numbers for Philips. Well, let's see how uh, they have done and whether they have delivered here. So the company says they've uh, produced a second quarter sales figure of 4.2% billion uh, with a 9% comparable sales growth net income coming in at 153 million euros. Uh, The group giving us a cash flow uh, number of 332 million as compared to the 446 million in the second quarter of 2020. So that's down on the comparable figure here. The uh, group says uh, adjusted uh, EBITDA rose to 532 million or 12.6% of sales compared to 390 million uh, for the comparable period or 9.8% of sales in the second quarter of 2020. So uh, clearly an improvement there. Philip says it has taken a provision though of 250 million in the second quarter of 2021. Productivity savings amounted to 90 million of which procurement savings uh, amounted to 44 million. The uh, group says we are launching a new share buy pro- share buyback program of one and a half billion euro in line with quote the balanced capital allocation policy. So that will be something 
that I think shareholders will hope to take to the bank this morning. Uh, the company goes on to say it is expected that the programme will be executed through a number of forward purchase transactions uh, with one or more financial institutions. The uh, the company, just to reiterate the point here, has uh, come into the uh, beginning of uh, 2021, obviously with that trailing win, Steve. And we we did ask a lot of questions as to whether if you are in the broader um, health tech area at the moment, whether you are going to see a slowing down of business trends for longer, because obviously a lot of operations have been suspended or postponed here. But on the evidence of the second quarter numbers, it, it would seem that Philips uh, continues to fare reasonably well against what is clearly a, a tough uh, business environment. Uh, yes, good morning, Jeffrey. Um, look, there's a couple of points here. I know we're going to move on to Ryanair, but one, why on earth are the shares down 7% year to date if they're one of the champions of Europe do, supposedly doing so well? We saw back in April, this was a stock trading at 50 euros. Look at that screen. They've lost 20% of their value. They are now 25% uh, lower uh, than they were previously. So what is going on here that one of the champions of Europe is struggling with such you know, solid numbers, as you point there, having lost uh, 20% of its value? And I think that's absolutely fascinating at a time when US stocks across the board are getting to record levels. And there is a little bit of a caveat here as well. And I presume uh, those who are talking about transitory inflation could just ignore this like they ignore a lot of the other evidence out there. But Franz van Houten this morning saying, looking ahead, we continue to see uncertainty related to the impact of COVID-19 across the world and electronic component shortages. Surely now all those transient effects would be uh, would be mitigated uh, by the supply chain globally uh, revving into gear as well. But they're not saying we see temporary electronic component shortages. It's just there's no uh, adjective attached to it as well. They are seeing electronic component shortages. And for those who are in the transient camp as well, perhaps slightly more unsettling times. Jeff, I'm told we must move on straight away. So we'll, uh, we'll have a little chat about this in a, in a very short while. Uh, Another stock which is underwhelming this year and hasn't enjoyed the rally is Ryanair, down 2.9% so far this year. And that's probably about right for these companies, isn't it? And you can see there a very tight band of trading uh, ever since November last year because people just really don't know how to price this sector at the moment. All kinds of bonkers comparisons and price earnings evaluations in this sector because people are trying to price in some form of recovery but just don't know where to look on this one. So let's have a look uh, at some of the individual figures coming out from there. And I've actually filled my screen full of uh, uh, Phillips. OK, here we go. They have reported a loss after tax of €273 million Euros in the April to June quarter. Uh, that is lower than the company poll. I don't know why we put company polls out here. So the company says X and then funnily enough, there's a beat there as well. Surely the independent Independent uh, polls are more useful. Anyway, they're talking about a strong booking recovery into peak summer with surge in bookings over recent weeks. Fares well below pre-COVID-19 levels. June cash balance of €4 billion. Euros, that is higher than 3.2 they had back in March. So the point there from Michael O'Leary's group is well capitalised. Expect traffic to rise from over €5 million in June to almost €9 million in July 10 million in August as well. Ancillary revenue performed well. That is when they sell you scratch cards and the like, isn't it? Uh, carbon credits fully hedged for full year 2022. Expect 35% hedge for 2023. Here you go. This is exactly my point about the pricing. And it's coming from the horse's mouth or from Ryanair's mouth as well. 
I think Horsey's mouth is probably quite apt, given that Michael O'Leary's got a couple of Grand National winners, uh, remains impossible to provide meaningful full-year 2022 guidance at this point. And I know Jeff would like to come in on at least one of these. Let's have a tiny chat before we get to our guests as well. Remains impossible to provide meaningful full-year 2022 guidance at this point. How on earth do you either buy or put a short on these stocks with that kind of outlook, Jeffrey? Uh, remains to be seen, I have to say. Well, that's your opportunity, isn't it? I would guess at this point. I mean, visibility clearly is lacking for anybody that's operating in the travel and leisure sector, as we know here, given that the government seems to change its mind every other day on what countries will or won't be on the amber list or on the red list. Uh, and so very hard, I think, for a, a business like Ryanair to have much clarity. But of course, the, the hope is that the fog of war will gradually begin to clear here as we get clear evidence, perhaps, that UK cases are rolling over and that ultimately the Delta variant will blow itself out over coming months. And I guess if you are, uh, just to run your GG's analogy a little bit further, if you are a betting man or woman, you may be interested in trying to get into a trade like this before we have full visibility, if you have a hunch that things are going to return somewhat to normal here. And I have to say, you know, we, we've done a lot of interviews with Michael O'Leary, haven't we, over the last 14 or 15 months. And I know that he is a man who does exuberance very well, but he clearly believes that there will be an opportunity for Ryanair here to continue to mop up some of the business lost by those flag carriers who we know have also been very badly mauled by this crisis, Steve. I'm just going to get a couple of anecdotes. All I saw on Saturday morning and Sunday were doom and gloom stories about the performance of British airports uh, and Heathrow uh, and the chaos created there. Well, I just want to come back with my own couple of anecdotes. One, I know that our dear friend uh, and colleague who's probably watching us in France now had a perfectly fantastic experience at T5 flying out uh, on Friday. And I, too, was at the same terminal uh, waiting an arrival and it was executed brilliantly by British airport. So I just want to say, I know there's problems out there flying. I know the Daily Mail loves a big queues at Terminal 2 story, but I only saw excellence in performance at Terminal 5 at Heathrow on Friday, uh, both from our dear friend departing and in me waiting in arrivals as well. So there you go, Jeffrey. a bit of optimism amidst the gloom. Excellent. Well, that's good news, at least, to hear that somebody's making it through the airports uh, relatively smoothly. Uh, let's just focus on uh, some of the other challenges for, for investors this morning. And I would suggest that we're seeing that writ large in the greater China trade at the moment. Uh, within the last few minutes, we've seen uh, quite a lot of pain. The Hong Kong market off uh, around uh, the 3% ledger mark. When it comes to the Shanghai and Shenzhen composites, we're down uh, over 2% on both of those markers. And the CSI 300 index also down quite sharply here. And regular uh, program watchers and China watchers will understand the reasons why there is some nervousness around this market, I would guess. The Chinese regulators continuing to tighten their grip on 
on some of the country's uh, tech giants. Over the weekend, the uh, state market regulator ordered Tencent Music to give up its exclusive music rights within 30 days. The company was also fined for unfair market practices over a previous deal. Uh, Tencent shares have started the week sharply lower. Meanwhile, Chinese online education stocks have taken a tumble after Beijing announced a clampdown on the $120 billion tutoring industry there. Uh, Let's get out to Sam for more on this. And Sam, I know there's a lot of speculation as to the reason why there's been this particular focus on ed tech stocks here. Some suggestion that this is about a uh, leveling up, if you like, for Chinese families who are finding it expensive to educate their children, obviously part of a, a broader drive to uh, stimulate childbirth here. But but that seems too simplistic uh, an answer at this point. What do you think? Good morning to you, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, this sector is certainly facing stepped up scrutiny now as China certainly looks to address its population growth concerns. And really, China going after another domestic sector here shouldn't really come as a huge surprise, particularly after what we've seen in the tech sector, as you just mentioned, with companies like Tencent. And certainly this could be seen as all a little bit intertwined as you now have this more largely online learning environment. And so what we've now seen is that China now banning tutoring uh, for profit when it comes to core school subjects. And so that is likely to take a hit to what is a $120 billion industry over in China. It's a very lucrative business. And you only have to really look as far as some of the uh, shares today in those education-related companies for evidence of that. They perhaps are bracing now for what could be a pretty big impact. We've seen now uh, these government documents as being reported by multiple media outlets. China now making tutoring companies register as non-profit organisations. These companies will also be banned from giving classes on weekends and vacation and also public holidays. Foreign investment in the sector will also be banned uh, under these rules. So companies that focus on curriculum-based tutoring uh, will be banned from raising cash through their listings, while listed companies won't be able to invest uh, in such institutions. And so uh, what this effectively is largely about is trying to ease some of the financial burdens for these families in China because, of course, China is pulling out all the stops now to try to reverse this falling birth rate. It is a big concern for Beijing. Of course, it did recently announce that uh, couples can have three children. And so this is largely the government now perhaps recognising that it's not just about how many kids people are allowed to have, but also the expense of doing so. Jeff, back to you. Terrific, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Well, let's, uh, when we come back, talk about one company that's hoping to clean up here. We're going to speak to the Whirlpool EMEA president, uh, Gilles Morel, after the household appliance manufacturer significantly raised its full-year guidance. Don't miss that first on CNBC interview right after this. Yeah, plus uh, someone just rolled past my prompt. Uh, from regulators cracking down in Beijing to investors eyeing profits in Silicon Valley, keep up to date with all the latest developments in technology markets by subscribing to the Squawk Box podcast, uh, available whenever you get wherever you get your podcasts.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, you should know what happened in the States last week. If you don't, I'll just tell you one more time as well. We saw an extraordinary, I think extraordinary five days. We saw one day where the market took an absolute drubbing and I dusted off all my reasons why the market might be a little bit nervous. Then we saw four days which took us uh, from the depths of despair on Monday evening to, quite frankly, ebullience by the end of the week with stratospheric gains across the board, really, i.e. record levels. The Nasdaq for the week up 2.8%, the S&P up 1.9%, and the Dow for the week, the Dow for the week uh, up, <laughs> thank you guys, uh, 3.2% as well. So some really uh, big moves from where we were. But why doesn't the market want to go down? Well, the man with the best wallpaper uh, on CNBC is Richard Harris, CEO of Port Shelter Investment Management. And oh, he's only always oh, moved here. He used to have wallpaper galore saying Port Shelter. I don't know what's happened there. I do like the family pictures instead, though, Richard. Good morning to you, my friend. Uh, why doesn't the market want to go down? Uh, well, uh, I mean, two simple things, really. There's stacks of liquidity around. I mean, there was a report at the weekend saying that households had maybe $17 trillion worth of liquidity. Well, whatever the figure is, it's a big figure. Um, and interest rates are still very low at a time when uh, asset prices are moving on quite happily. So I, I think just the fact that there's so much money in the market is just keeping uh, prices fairly buoyant. I think I noticed over your left shoulder a little spitfire on your bookshelf there as well. Uh, The bears are spitting fire about this rally. They're saying it just does not seem right at the moment. Uh, It's extraordinary that we're running despite all the tensions in the market as well. That bear argument that I dusted off uh, on Monday evening as well. Do you think any of those points are going to come to the fore in a month and a period of time where the liquidity will thin out a little bit over the summer? Uh, I, I think you're looking at two things there. First of all, you're looking the longer term. And yes, eventually liquidity is going to thin out. Eventually, the Fed is going to get more serious about putting interest rates. But I think in the short term, it's a little bit like, you know, you know the early days, post-war days of air travel. You know, you have long periods of boredom uh, and then short periods of sheer terror. And if you look at the VIX at the moment, it's quite interesting because it's showing exactly that. You're seeing a general decline in volatility, uh, certainly in equity assets, over maybe the last um, three, four, five months. And then sudden spikes every now and then when the market uh, maybe comes back to reality. But again, I don't think the market is going to really find reality while there are all these other uh, almost artificial factors out there that aren't really, uh, don't really have any uh, link to the underlying economy. Richard, let me just pick up on that point, because uh, anybody that's been around the markets for uh, more than a few years will understand that periods of uh, suppressed volatility quite often lead to periods of heightened volatility. And if we look at where we are on vol at the moment, it's very reminiscent of 2017. And, and subsequently, we know what happened running into 2018. Um, how concerned or otherwise do we need to be about a near-term trigger for an uptick in volatility? I don't know, some, something like this week's Fed meeting, for example. 
Well, that that's right. We're always on the lookout for, you know, the unknown unknowns. Um, I suspect they're a little way off yet. I think that the the bull factors are still going to be ahead. But you see, what we're getting with these volatility, I mean, volatility is a very blunt instrument. Um, volatility can be quite low while the market's going up steadily, as we're seeing at the moment. And that's probably why uh, the averages are declining. And yes, you're quite right that we're in a phase where suddenly we get moments of criticality, where the mo where, where the market suddenly looks, you know, the Wiley Coyote thing, where it looks down and realizes there's a long way to go. Um, but at the moment, these uh, artificial factors really are pushing things on. So I, I've been, maybe I've been a stale bear for so long, but I think that the market actually tends to have an inbuilt resistance. It tends to really stay where it is in a steady state for a long time. Um, and the kind of things that we're looking at, I think in terms of criticality, for example, might be where the market finally realizes the, the Fed really hasn't got a control on inflation and can't put interest rates up enough. I think that's the kind of thing that we're looking at to, to see real criticality at the moment. Yeah, and when we're talking about the market, of course, I think, as you've made clear, we're primarily talking about the ability of the U.S. indices uh, and stocks to push on here. If, if you look elsewhere, um, there are all sorts of issues. I mean, here in the uh, here in London, the, the FTSE is struggling around this 7000 mark. And this morning in your part of the world, we've obviously got a lot of pain for the greater China markets. I mean, what is your view outside of the United States on putting money to work in some of these areas or markets that do look challenged at the moment? They do. I think Europe looks quite interesting. That's been the one place that's been coming through. And uh, I was running some of these comparison charts yesterday and uh, and Japan's been OK. So there have been some bright spots out there. Um, Hong Kong, China has been a standout, uh, I guess, in maybe the last six months. Uh, and they've had their own issues. China's obviously in the stage of a, a heavy clampdown on the commercial sector. Um, and Hong Kong's had its own issues as well. So they pulled back a lot. Uh, but if you look at these indices in dollar terms. You know, many of the markets haven't done too badly. Everybody's trailed the US, uh, but you've got certain areas like the like Europe, uh, places like India, you know, some of those frontier markets that have kind of held their own uh, with China, Hong Kong and uh, the UK. Of course, the UK's had uh, issues about Brexit currencies coming off. So in dollar terms, that doesn't look so good. Um, so I think there's quite a lot of difference there. And that difference is often being spurred by local conditions. Uh, Richard, yeah, you, all the points above that you and Jeff and I have spoken about absolutely to the fore, but you've almost just kind of thrown in geopolitics as a bit of a, oh, maybe this will worry us as well kind of thing. And it's always simmering in the background. But is it going to come to the fore at any time stage that, soon that geopolitics will act as a market catalyst in one direction or another? And presumably geopolitics, normally when it goes wrong, that is, uh, spells bad news for markets. You know, uh, politics very often is quite short term on the markets. You know, the long term, it's the economy stupid. Uh, and I think the other thing with politics is you need to have some really serious issues before politics really becomes a driving factor. So if you look at the issue between the US and China at the moment, um, you can't say relations are good. But trade has to continue. Uh, if you look at the UK, the UK is talking about pulling the Chinese out of uh, building nuclear plants in the UK. And yet they're still importing billions of dollars in Chinese testing equipment. So I think that both sides need each other. So there's an enormous amount of rhetoric at the geopolitical stage. 
there'll be plenty of uh, position seeking uh, both by the West and, and by China in, in their own positions. But at the end of the day, China is the world's factory. The world needs China and China needs the world. And I think at that raw level, it's going to be very difficult for either side uh, to really put a break too much on what's really happening at the grassroots. Well, let me ask you then about um, the sectoral picture, Richard. Steve and I were just chatting a little bit about Ryanair at the top of the programme. We had some numbers through from Philips as well, of course. And there has been this uh, argument that you re-enter a lot of these um, reopening trades because we will clearly defeat the Delta variant. What's your view at this stage about where you park cash sectorially? Are you interested in buying into these uh, travel and leisure stocks still, given that we don't really have a lot of clarity on how and when this Delta variant is going to die down around the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, on Philips first, I used to say, you remember, I used to be a European fund manager. You'd never really lost your virginity as a fund manager until you'd lost your money in Philips three times. Um, it does seem to be a volatile stock. Uh, and it is, as uh, Steve says, you know, a bit of a national treasure in the European markets. Um, but I think we're looking really at a short term and long term feature here. When we're talking about what people have called the re reflation stocks, I mean, really, they're recovery stocks after COVID. Um, I think that, yeah, there may be a trade in there. Uh, and we're, we, we certainly will come to an end of, of, of the Delta variant. It looks as if uh, things are recovering in the UK at, at the moment. Uh, and those short-term stocks will still be there. They're really a trade. When you're looking long-term, I think you still need to be looking at the kind of shares that are going to do reasonably well during an inflationary period, the kind of uh, companies that can keep their pricing going, things like um, uh, consumer durables. These are all co consumables, you know, supermarkets, that sort of thing. Um, but also companies like tech, because tech is able to, to move its prices. The banks will probably be okay in the medium term, I think, certainly while uh, this kind of trend lasts. Uh, and maybe even some luxury because some of that money's got to be spent. So I think that you're looking short term with things like airline and hospitality as they recover. That'll be a short, sharp recovery. Uh, but longer term, I, I tend to prefer some of those stocks that we're still going to be wanting to hold in maybe a couple of years time. Richard, good to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Richard Thank Harris you, coming to us from Port Shelter investment management where he's the CEO of that business. Well, he raises some interesting questions about inflation and companies that are able to add a little bit to their prices to deal with uh, core inflationary pressures. Let's focus on Whirlpool. The business has raised its full year guidance on the back of sustained consumer demand. This is the household appliance maker posted a more than 30% jump in quarterly sales. Adjusted earnings per share came in at $6.64 compared to the analysts' expectations of below the $6 mark. We're pleased to have with us uh, Gilles Morel, the president of Whirlpool for EMEA. Uh, Gilles, nice to have you on the programme. Can I just talk about the demand picture with you at the moment? How, how much longer or stronger do you see this consumer demand being sustained for? Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me uh, today. Yes, indeed, a very strong demand, again, reporting Q2 globally, as you mentioned, and also in uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, where we had a, a revenue growth of 38%. But what is uh, maybe more meaningful 
is to uh, compare that uh, to 2019, where we see across all our countries and major categories a very strong double-digit growth versus 2019, so pre-pandemic. So we see really people, like all of us, cherishing their home, uh, ready and in need of appliances that are giving them the convenience, the safety, healthy, and the sustainability they need. Uh, so that, that's uh, really what, what we see through, through these times. Um, that means it's driven by uh, innovation of products, so we have accelerated through these uh, times uh, things and amplified our product launches. For example, people started cooking much more. So we have accelerated the launch of an induction hub. In the past, it was reserved to the rich people, and we have a, a very, uh, we have declined this uh, induction hub, which is more sustainable, cooking with electricity hub. Uh, this kind of hub is more sustainable than, than gas. It uh, also offers more convenience with flexibility of cooking, and that has been a big success. Uh, we were also, uh, prior to pandemic, uh, the leader of online sales were our brand of Whirlpool, KitchenAid, Hotpoint, and Indesit. And of course, you can imagine, through the pandemic, this has accelerated and amplified this. We see this uh, continuing for, for, for the months and, and the years to come because uh, people will continue nesting and working from home. So they will continue uh, relying on appliances. And uh, of course, they are using as well those appliances uh, more often, so we expect them to renew them as well. And we see across the world uh, um, an increase in the housing on the construction market. So, yes, uh, the, we expect the growth for home appliances to be sustained for, for the, the months and the, the year, years to come. Gilles. Gilles, well, that all sounds very positive, and we may come back to some of those particular uh, sales channels and product lines in just a moment. But clearly, one of the pressing issues is uh, inflation and whether you're able to pass through higher materials costs at this point. Can you just share with us what actions you are taking either to mitigate those cost increases or indeed to pass them straight through to the customer? So... Indeed, uh, the, the, we are operating in a very special environment for the last uh, 12 months uh, because we are facing inflation and the constraint supply environment. For inflation, we have communicated, we have been able to pass between 5 to 12% of, of increases, and this is really uh, significant increases. We saw the, the price of steel, of steel in Europe jumping very significantly. We saw plastic and resin. We saw as well electronics. So indeed, we... At Whirlpool, we have been able to anticipate and, and see this coming very, very strong. So we, have, we uh, since the beginning of the year, have uh, passed the price increases. They are not always very easy to, to pass. You can imagine in, in Europe with the trade, but uh, we are pleased uh, to, and that shows uh, the strength of our brands, the operational excellence of our team. Yes, we are, we are able, as we speak, to pass the price increase that are cost-based from uh, our raw material uh, increases. Gilles, are you having to uh, come up with any more of those big pay deals as well? There was a story a couple of years ago about Whirlpool having to uh, workers getting a 13.75% pay rise after threat of strike action. Are those kind of numbers still going through if your workers wanting big pay rises? So uh, I'm talking about Whirlpool in a year, and uh, uh, honestly, yes, uh, we, we have uh, the chance to rely on a very engaged uh, workforce. 
uh, yes, have been a challenge to, uh, at some point, uh, to, uh, to meet the increased demand. So we have uh, actually uh, more people working in our operation than 18 months ago. But uh, we have been able to uh, step up uh, our operation, both in Italy, in Poland, in uh, the Slovak Republic, and also in Russia. Uh, because people want a, a good job and actually Whirlpool is a good place to work. So we have uh, strong values. We have dealt with people through the pandemic on safety uh, first. And, and this is known in the industry. We, it is known that uh, to work at Whirlpool, it's a very safe place to work where the conditions are met. And of course, uh, when there's hard work, there's also hard rewards. And uh, we have uh, put uh, all our attention to making sure that people are safe uh, well, uh, and we take care of their well-being, and they are paid uh, uh, in accordance of, of the work they do. So uh, we 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 don't face uh, the numbers you are talking about. Uh, what is uh, our focus at the moment is to ensure that uh, people uh, have supported in terms of safety, well-being, and reward. Uh, Gilles, I'll let you into a secret. Mrs. Sedgwick, my wife, has just bought a new washing machine. I don't know if it's one of yours or not. I, I'll be totally honest with you as well. I, I'm, I'm a bit disgusted because the old one looked fantastic as well. Now, the UK has brought in a right to repair law and it's coming into force. And we know the EU's doing the same thing as well. Your industry has been very, very guilty about making your products redundant too early as well. Has the industry changed and are we now going to see more huge efforts to get a circular economy and that your devices and the industry's devices are actually more repairable? Yes, absolutely. Uh, at Whirlpool, uh, we have been leading innovation for 100 years and sustainability also be core to what we have been doing for more than 50 years because we put in place our first office for sustainability back in 1969. So this is not new for us. So it's included. Uh, our commitment to the net zero we published uh, uh, recently, and, uh, which is an acceleration of uh, our efforts on, on the, uh, to achieve net zero. But also this includes uh, our effort to uh, uh, repairability. Uh, so you mentioned the UK. In the UK, we have 1,000 engineers. So service is absolutely critical. We have 1,000 engineers, field engineers, who visit the home of our consumers in the UK. In the UK, on average, we are our brands, hot points in visit of Whirlpool are in KitchenAid and in every home, every home. And yes, we, we may attention that we can uh, serve uh, and, and repair those, uh, those appliances whenever needed uh, and support the consumers. So the, the repairability, durability of our appliance is, is a commitment of the industry we are taking. And it's part of uh, the EU initiative as well, not only in the UK, but also in the EU. Uh, and as an industry, we are really committed to make sure that uh, people have access to spare parts for a long period of time. And as I said, we uh, invest as well in, in our service operations. So to make sure that our, uh, our, our appliances can serve, uh, help and improve the life of home as long as possible. Lovely to speak today, Gilles. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, Gilles Morel, uh, the president of Whirlpool. Emir, joining us from the lovely part of Italy in Lombardy called Perro. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.